Between the Covers is brought to you in part through the support of Propeller, a magazine of books, music, art, film, and life, and its publishing imprint, Propeller Books. Visit them on the web at propellermag.com and propellerbooks.com or on Twitter at PropellerMag. Before we begin today's program, I wanted to talk briefly about a past guest, Jesse Ball, and an offer he has made to listeners on behalf of the program. I suspect many of you know who Jesse Ball is since he was recently a guest on Between the Covers and yet is already the second most listened to episode of all time. If you don't know him, you should definitely check out our conversation and explore his work. Jesse Ball sent me copies of his 2006 book that he co-wrote with the Icelandic poet and novelist Thordis Bjornstadir called Vera and Linus to offer as gifts for people who support the Between the Covers Patreon campaign. Vera and Linus is a gorgeous object, full of illustrations, and made with care by an Icelandic small press. The story is composed of a mixture of what could be called prose poetry, flash fiction, and sketches, and Publishers Weekly says of Vera and Linus, the light touch and often archaic feel of the prose owes as much to Kafka as to classic fairy tales. Certainly, many readers will find this book unsettling, but most will also find it hard not to remember a time when the world was filled with this kind of fearful mystery and wonder. Vera and Linus is out of print. The Icelandic publisher no longer exists, so this is a rare memento. For people who are not already supporters of the program, if you begin ongoing support of the show at $2 an episode through Patreon, that is patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash between the covers, you can receive a copy of Vera and Linus. If you're already a supporter, either via PayPal or Patreon, you likewise can get a copy by increasing your support by $1 an episode, or if you're a PayPal supporter, beginning a Patreon support at $1 an episode. Again, this is at patreon.com slash between the covers. Enjoy today's program. These stories are about the id unleashed. They're about the wildness contained in all of us. I think stories kind of have some kind of magical effect in the world. I think it's really hard to live without stories. And if somebody tells you, like, this is the way you're going to end up, you're lucky if you can forget that. You know, there's me, and then there's writer guy me, and then there's me working, which is the absence of me. It's just story. Had no idea how to write a novel, didn't know if it would ever come to fruition. Was working at a vet and kind of lint rolling puppy hair and cat dander off myself. They're almost like really shy animals. They will come out of the woods, but you have to stay very still. And you have to pretend like you're not interested in them. Artists tend to like put their fingers in the wounds, in the silences. I believe in the role of literature as a, as a catalyst for dialogue and, and, and new forms of, of thinking. All the stuff I'm interested in is thrown into the washing machine that is my brain and it's put on spin. Good morning and welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's guest writer, Talia Field, is the author of many books that resist classification, that cross genres or create new ones. These include Point in Line, Incarnate Story Material, and Bird Lover's Backyard, all from New Directions. Field is a graduate of Brown University, where she received the first John Hawkes Prize in Fiction. But prior to writing books, Field worked primarily in theater in Paris, Berlin, and New York. 
You can see this influence during her tenure as senior editor of Conjunctions magazine, where she guest edited a special issue on experimental music theater, as well as in her various multimedia collaborations with dancers and performers. This influence is evident in her books as well, but possibly none more than Ululu Crown Shrapnel from Coffeehouse Press, which she calls a performance novel. In addition, Field has two books of collaborative co-writing with the French author Abigail Long, A Prank of George's, and the forthcoming Leave to Remain. Talia Field is a professor of literary arts at Brown University and a frequent teacher at the summer writing program at Naropa, and she is here today to talk about her latest book, the culmination of over a decade of writing and research, entitled Experimental Animals, a Reality Fiction, just out from Solid Objects. Publishers Weekly says Field's ambitious novel will astonish with its dry wit, synthesis of ideas, and intricate balance of scope and intimacy. And John Degada adds that advancing what she started 20 years ago with her earliest explorations of essayistic fiction, Talia Field has now composed what very well might be her life's work, a tragic, comical, and utterly fascinating tale of a marriage that vividly encapsulates not only the origins of experimental medicine, but an entire age that spirited experiments in literature, science, engineering, and film. It's nothing less than a history, gorgeously fictional, purposefully essayistic, of how we got where we are. Welcome to Between the Covers, Talia Field. Thank you, David. So I loved this book, and uh, I'm not exaggerating when I say that I've never read anything like it ever, and I mean that as a compliment. Um, but I'm, and I'm torn whether to start with the form, which is supremely unusual and unique, or with the story, which is also equally unusual and fascinating. But I think if we start with the two central characters, who they are, why you chose them as actors in the drama, uh, I think we'll quickly, by necessity, end up in a discussion about the form. So can you introduce, introduce us to Claude and Fanny Bernard? Yeah, that was funny when you just said the two central characters, because I was like, oh, my God, which two are he, is he talking about? <laughs> um, yeah, so the book, I mean, right, so they're kind of the central characters in as much as their marriage in many ways dramatizes the larger societal arguments that sort of in some ways emerge from the same ground as their marriage. So, yes, they're like the central dramatic figures, but in many ways they it's almost like they fragment and begin to proliferate um, through other characters in the book. Mm-hmm. So it... The book is a little lopsidedly structured in some ways. I mean, we really focus on their marriage at first, and then I think we widen out, and lots of other characters start to play roles that um, fall in line with this sort of domestic drama. Yeah. But tell us just briefly about the domestic drama, the okay. improbable marriage yes. between these two people who you can't imagine sharing a room. Yes. Well, they were both sort of older in the terms of the day. I think they were both almost nearing 30 when they were forced into somewhat of an arranged situation. Um, and because women at the time weren't allowed to own their own property or have their own money, um, Fanny essentially funded uh, Claude Bernard's early research in physiology. He was a bit of a failed student um, who had himself come from a theatrical background. And um, once he got the windfall of the dowry that she brought with her, he was able to begin his career. Unfortunately, she did not like what was happening with her money. And so right away, we get a 
a, a sort of farcical situation where she's put in the position of having to, um, I guess, undermine him uh, in order to um, make a statement about her values. So Claude Bernard is a is sort of the premier innovator of, of vivisection in 19th century. He's France. the premier. He's considered the father of experimental medicine. Like if yeah. you, that's the the little catchphrase that's used with him. Um, and hagiographies of him abound. And there's always you know a a line or two, maybe three, about oh his horrible wife. The poor man was a martyr to his marriage, and there was this horrible wife, and she was you know the bane of his existence. So I was very curious about who this wife was, and that's what partly began the journey um, to, f- to find out what the story was. But yes, he was, he's considered the founder of experimental medicine. At the time, medicine was located in hospitals as a clinical practice that was very empirical, and there was really no such thing as the laboratory. We think of the laboratory as ubiquitous, and it's even hard to imagine that it has a history. But actually, this the novel tells the story of the history of the laboratory as it was being created, um, mostly by him. And one of, and one of the ways you, you talk about how the marriage then sort of um, becomes fractured into all sorts of different narratives that it resonates out into the, the history that's happening in 19th century France. Uh, Fanny is, is essentially an unheralded animal activist opposing the, uh, the experimentation on live animals that her husband's doing and is getting funded through her, her dowry. Yes, animal experimentation, and Claude says it in many ways all throughout his entire life, animal vivisection is the foundational practice of the modern laboratory. Without animal vivisection, there would be no experimental medicine. And so, yeah, because that is mandated through his practice, where are they going to get all these animals? So they, so instantly, um, a whole entire industry of animal, I don't know, procuration turns up. And she, she is mentioned in some texts as being as having stolen animals out from under him. Um, I'm sure what you're going to ask me some questions about the fact that the very little about her actually exists in the archives, independent of of these hagiographies and things that are written really on his behalf. And so eventually, as I was constructing the book, it became quite clear that she was so foundational to animal activism. And yet in the archives, she's kind of absent. So Fanny's absence and the animal's absence in the archives became a kind of twin motor. It's really the only place of invention in the book. Mm-hmm. Well, that's interesting because you, your original intent in, in writing Experimental Animals was for all the material to be archival and nonfiction. So essentially that none of the words would be yours, but you would collage them into a conversation on a sort of uh, fictional stage with real wor- real words aiming at a truth. Right. But because of this absence of archival material, you end up having to inhabit the voice of, of one of the main characters. Indeed. The connective tissue becomes something that is an act of, of imagination. Indeed. Can, can you walk us through a little bit about um, that process of you've identified a, uh, a project for yourself, you've come a, up against the limitations of, of doing it the way you want to, and then how do you then negotiate um, creating a voice for Fanny? Well, it happened very late in the process um, because I was still clinging to my 
desperate hope that I could, in a sort of Benjaminian way, um, collage this material into a, something that functioned dramatically. But my first drafts were, I mean, not only were they 900 pages long, but they were really dramatically unviable as a novel. And because a lot of the book, and we can obviously maybe talk about this later, a lot of the book discusses the aesthetics of the time and what a novel was and what realism was doing in multiple forms, I did want it to be a novel in conversation with novels. So it switched from being kind of an archival project in conversation with Benjamin to being a novel in conversation with novels. And once I was really in the writing phase, once everything had been translated and I had gotten it all kind of put together in some provisional way, I realized that the balance without Fanny's, without Fanny dramatically in a more present way, I wasn't going to be a set, able to set up what I needed to set up for people like Anna Kingsford to follow. Um, I couldn't just jump into Anna Kingsford without giving Fanny more dramatic weight. So that's why. So then I had to, yeah, I had to go around inventing, which I had clues. You know, the letters that are in the book are hers. Um, there are a few of what exists. There's a list that everyone refers to of, that, of somehow proof of how horrible she is. Um, and then there's the fact that she was Catholic at a time when I could research what it meant to be Catholic at that time and really... I, that was actually something that was very grounding for me to to figure out what Mary, the figure of Mary, might have meant to her, how to be a Catholic, who could be an animal activist. Um, so I, 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 but tonally, the letters were very important. Um, mm. She was kind of a crank. She was obviously unafraid of saying what she thought. And um, <clears throat> it gave me a way into her voice. Yeah. And it's interesting how this, this limitation, which you could see as... Um, unfortunate or as an obstacle actually sort of deepens sort of the enterprise of the book itself in the sense that um, the woman who wants to speak for the animals, which don't have a voice, uh, doesn't have a voice herself, or at least her voice isn't chronicled. And the animals are doubly silenced in the sense that her husband is inventing ways to operate on them where her where their vocal cords are cut or either using this South American poison so that they're paralyzed and so you don't know if they're having an experience. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And none of that, this is not where I began. Just for, for people out there who obviously don't, don't, don't really know creative process, none of this was, like, I didn't start out with any of this knowledge. This kind of narrative, I would say almost the kind of the, the gut punch of what, it, of what the story is really doing wasn't clear until very late when I really had all the research and could really see what was at stake. And, and that's when some of those more... Um, really crux dramatic elements began to emerge. Well, let's have our listeners hear a little a little taste of the, the voice of Fanny in the book. After Claude goes out one warm November night, I dare follow in my nightgown and catch him stalking a pile of pallets near the corner, massed of gray, but in the progress of ruin. I fumble, fall out of the doorway while trying to get a good look, and a pair of dogs disappear with a graceful leap. Claude curses me for being outside. Any normal doctor's wife would be outlining the next day's meals, listening to children read while embroidering, getting the servants for evening prayers, welcoming seamstresses, making lists of accounts, and hosting lavish entertainments. Some seasons have laundry, others canning and making liquor. Remove candle wax from tablecloths, freshen a chamber pot with, pot with Angelica, shine the silver, change their chair covers, and drapery with the seasons. A normal doctor's wife would have four or five dresses, updated regularly, account books exact, kept in columns, tallied weekly. 
Numerous servants supply the impression of a lady at ease. Inside the house, the wife doesn't think of the world outside, the politics, science, none of it. Disagreeable news makes a proper wife faint or swoon or stumble to a couch. She's fixated on her family, the home. Winters she should gather socially. Mass daily, often twice. Confession, offerings, daughters to school with the sirs, where they learn penmanship, social deportment, arithmetic. But not novels, because, well, too much individualism there. I remember the rule of thumb. Self-expression limited to five minutes per day. In other words, Fanny, a good wife wouldn't look at her husband the way you do or inquire about his doings. A good wife hears without listening or listens without hearing. Anyway, she's as deaf as anyone who wants to sleep. Fanny, they hiss, never think of yourself except to renounce the thought. But all my money goes out with Claude and doesn't return, while the wife of the poor scientist is asked to live in perpetual spiritual connection to his sacrifices. The chiffonniers are the bitter reminders of my respectability. They're ransom, my costumes and housewares. I can't help it. I was told to reject my story, so now his story is all I can think about. Everything he talks about is livers and kidneys, blood and nerves, and there's no pew at the church in my name, so I think about nerves and livers. This marriage is hardly between people, but between me and his big idea. A fashionable martyr minces her barbed crown hand to hand while studying the pains in John Fox's Book of Martyrs. We've been listening to Talia Field read from Experimental Animals, a reality fiction. So you mentioned earlier that even though the book starts very weighted towards the relationship between Claude and Fanny, it, it, all, we get all sorts of different figures in the book that echo a lot of what's happening in the marriage, but sort of in the society at large. We get Francis Bacon, we get Charles Darwin, we get George Eliot, we get Thoreau, we get Anna Kingsford, a British anti-vivisectionist, Flaubert, Hugo, Balzac, Zola. And one of the interesting things about it is that the artists of the day were looking to tune to new techniques in science in order to create new literary techniques, new modes and orientations in writing. So for instance, we have the scientific adage, experiment first, think later, um, to start with interaction with reality versus starting with an idea. And from that, we get the Goncourt brothers, uh, two French writers who wanted to write without searching further than what they called the physical basis of life. Um, George Eliot says that vivisection will engender successful literature. Balzac advances the idea of portraying the real versus the ideal, writing about the baseness of life. And all this is happening as if the rise of physiology and science with Claude Bernard led to literary physiologies, um, books that purport to describe things as they are in all their ugliness without embellishment. And the stories are even not called stories, but studies. But no writer seems to exemplify this more than Emile Zola. And so I was hoping you could talk about Emile Zola in light of this scientific literary cross-pollination that's happening in 19th century France. You're absolutely right. Your, your accounting is very much what I tried to lay out in the book, sort of that there's an entire movement that had been going on for a little bit of time uh, that reflected the tension between the positivists and the materialists and the romant the romantics and then of course the spiritualists and people sort of on that side so hugo in a lot of ways is the lead member of what i would call or they might have called the opposition you know the sort of the romantics but in my book he fulfills a different function because Hugo is really the one who sees the plight of the animals and was a titulary president of Anna Kingsford's, uh, the first French anti-vivisection society. So 
he actually was very active and came down very strongly. Uh, he could see what was what was at stake in this experimental world. Um, the other artists, um, Zola in particular, really emulated Bernard. Now, he came a little bit after some of the other ones that you mentioned, but he went further in hoisting Bernard up as the prime example of the values of experimentalism. And, he, you know, as, as it says in the book, and as everyone knows, he wrote a book called The Experimental Novel that was basically, I mean, honestly, he really did almost replace the word novelist for the word phys physiologist. It's, it's that kind of a silly book. Um, but, his, but his efforts are very, very genuine. And I think he sees in the potential of real naturalism, realism, as he's defining it, a kind of activism on the human level um, that... I, I'm not I wouldn't even comment on. I think he's genuine in it and I think he advances some really interesting literary practices. However, in terms of this novel and this story, he really ignores the plight of of the beings that are at the center of experimentation at the time, and it wouldn't have been lost on him. The debates between the anti-vivisectionists and the and the rising institutionalization of the laboratory were not invisible. They were very, very public, and lots and lots of people were very involved, famous people on all sides. And so he never took a position in that debate barely mentioned it till almost the end of his life when he wrote a very silly little piece called L'Amour des Bêtes, um, which basically kind of sentimentalizes his relationship to his pets and mentions, I think almost cynically, a stray dog in the street. But for 50 years, stray dogs in the streets had been the site of all of this contested activity around the activists and the experimentalists. So Zola's so an interesting character, and I try to tell that story in the book. And speaking of the animals on the street, w because of all the political turmoil at the time, weren't a lot yes. of those animals being eaten? Yes. Yeah, so that's why. So I do go into uh, during the time when there's the siege and then the commune, instead of focusing on the human toll, of which obviously there's a great amount, I try to follow what happens to the animals during times of war and revolution, cholera. Yes, there's an, uh, blood and pain have become and fighting have a different value and weight than I think we can imagine in our sort of protected culture. Um, they were very much in people's faces and, um, and yes, and everyone's lovely pets from the, the, from the Second Empire were quickly made into stew during the, the siege and the commune. Yeah. Well, you mentioned that Zola has a, a book that he calls the experimental novel. Uh, and when we think of experimental literature now, it doesn't feel like we're even talking necessarily about the same thing when they're calling uh, experimental literature. And similarly, naturalism and realism don't have really um, what we'd call common sense definitions of what we would think something naturalistic would be or realistic t today had a very different uh, uh, sense then. Yeah. One thing I did want to explore were the original meanings of some of these words that now we toss around but don't really know as well what they where they came from. So I didn't particularly, I mean, I, that's part of what set me on the journey of the book. And experimentalism, definitely, we forget the pain and suffering at, this, at the heart of it at the time, I think. Um, and it, but, but like you mentioned, it also is a relationship of literature to science that 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 part may have may be the the thing that continues in some way the idea of a kind of a universe of laws and practices that go beyond the just the individual ego in some sense or um, 
But in terms of realism, the other thing that I wanted the book to show was that there are actually two very robust definitions of realism at that time. There was the realism kind of that we've inherited that became naturalism and became a sort of all-encompassing, detail-oriented sort of... I don't know. You, you know what, what I'm talking about. It became a convention of its own. But there's an activist form of realism that was um, where the where the the activists really used the quotations and the source material from the scientists uh, to activate the public, to awaken people to the reality of what was being hidden from them. And that form of realism, which has not been canonized, um, I also wanted to bring forward as a kind of an alternate uh, history. Well, that's really interesting because, you know, Zola thinks he's creating a um, new, more real literature that borrows from science by engaging with facts or details that are often left out of books. So he thinks that he's, he's um, taking silenced things and putting them into literature. But one of the great ironies of this, I think, that Experimental Animals points out really well is that science itself is also silencing facts. Um, and Nathan Goldman, in his review of your book at, at Full Stop, says something really astute about this. He says, science, with its aim toward objectivity and universality, tempts us to understand it as transcending historical conditions by situating science in a precise historical frame practiced by a host of historical personalities according to a historically developing and hotly contested method Experimental Animals argues persuasively that science, like any other human activity, is inextricably tied to the conditions of its conception and practice. Can you talk a little bit more about that, about how, in a way, you're, you are flipping the narrative about realism? Because, like, for instance, one of the definitions of, one of the weird contradictory definitions of naturalism is, on the one hand, it's about um, reconnecting humans to nature, but it's also about doing that through rationalism, which as if like there's something um, that it's very like inherently human and perfect in that, that you could then reunite man and nature. I don't know if that's related to the science, but the scientific part, this bias that it's pure and clean and value free. Yes. And it, I think it has to do with the nature of what experimentation meant at the time, which was to isolate the subject and rem take it apart into its constituent pieces, that analysis section. Um, that's what I think Zola in some ways was picking up on. Like you observe in the, the parts and the work, you, you figure out how something works, because that's essentially what experimentation meant to you know they were still especially Claude Bernard he was really just taking stuff apart often very violently and i'm referring to living animals um but that method of just like uh getting to the heart of something by taking it apart i think that's in some ways what a lot of the the writers and uh scientists or artists were picking up on from the scientists um but what what you meant with the Goldman with Nathan Goldman's quote, what I yeah. what I what I picked up from there is not yes these personalities. I always think it's important that we remember that people are creating science, but also um, the laboratory itself, its entire ideology, is about creating a space that is 
impenetrable to the outside world. Like that's it. And, and, and I think my book tried to show that because as wars and regimes are changing the politics and as all of the people are fighting over whether the church or the, you know, the positivists who should be in charge of, you know, people's minds and, and behaviors, that the, that the way that the laboratory learned to survive <clears throat> was almost to cr- create a, a self-imposed neutral zone, which also fit with Claude Bernard's philosophy that the body homeostasis is because we are impenetrable to outside factors. Um, And so it really is a very thoroughgoing philosophical ideology about that there is a possible objective neutral space. Yeah. And that and it ha- and that but it has a historical context. The reason why we want to have a impenetrable neutral objective space it, it has is because we live in a world of chaos and and other and other things that we can't control. And so to reduce all scientific questions to what you can control in a laboratory was very seductive. Um, and that's in some ways why Darwin's narrative is important to me. Because he is someone who foundationally, as a human being, was very much against pain and loved animals and um, in so, and was very close friends with Francis Cobb, another character in the book. But when it came down to, really came down to it, and this is described in the narrative of the book, to, um, in 1876 when the English Commission on Vivisection was running, he sided with the scientists because he couldn't imagine a world where science would be regulated or controlled by non-scientists. And that elevation of science into its own realm of discourse, where only scientists can comment on science or evaluate it, that was to me an incredibly important historical moment for the laboratory and for those values that separate science out from society. He was so interesting as a character because he... um threw up at one point and seen a dog being abused and he runs out of the um, anatomy lab uh, when he sees the corpses and um, and you can make I think the book makes an argument that a lot of his discoveries are discoveries through a belief in a shared or kindred spectrum of of consciousness yeah he's the original empiricist he's all about observation and in fact in Claude's private writing he dismisses him endlessly because you can't prove any of his theories in a lab so in some ways, he's the antithesis to the laboratory scientist. Yeah, that's fascinating. And back to your, um, your talking about activist realism, when we were talking about this neutral space, this lab that the outside eye can't penetrate. So when you say activist realism, are you speaking of activists and mainly women at the time who were, who were infiltrating into, say, the Pasteur Institute and then um, reporting back what they see that's not being reported? Well, is that's that? That, Pasteur is a little past the... I don't go into Pasteur very much. He's a young man, as my book is taking place. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually, what happens after, the, after the, my book closes is that the laboratory learns the lesson that if they want to survive, they have to stay away from the public, and more and more they retreat into spaces that cannot be observed. But during my book, what I what I really wanted to show is look what happens before that's possible. Look what happens when the laboratory is inevitably going to both through the sights, the sounds, the smells, the impact on the streets, where it cannot hide its practices, you get this incredible controversy, public debate. Um, it, it, it can't just be hidden away. 
very quickly it gets hidden away. They learn that lesson, starting with that the observation, the, the 1876 commission, which says you know, only scientists should regulate science. But after that, they also learn, well, you know what? If nobody can see or hear or tell what we're doing, then and only sort of people who are being indoctrinated into the way we think, which is what Anna Kingsford, because she was a medical student, she articulates in the book, like this is really more of a philosophical training as much as medical training. Um, that only people who are indoctrinated into the way we think should see what we do. Now, we see echoes of that today with all kinds of gag rules and um, laws about <clears throat> information when it comes to disseminating about animal experimentation. But that's, I'm not, I, just so you know, I mean, that that may be true, but it's not the purview of my novel. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? It does. And I have to be careful because I don't, I don't want to come off as like super anti-science or, or anything like that. It's... I don't think animal suffering should be the basis of science, but beyond that, in a historical sense, I don't want to try to talk about things I'm not an expert in. We're talking today to writer Talia Field about her newest book, Experimental Animals, A Reality Fiction. I wanted to ask you more about the subtitle, A Reality oh, yeah. Fiction. Mm -hmm. um, in your interview with the Dalkey Archive, you assert a different definition of realism than the writers of 19th century fiction or for that matter, most contemporary writers of realistic fiction would use, I think. You say, um, for me, it is realistic to be paradoxical, polyvocal, cacophonous. Stories where everything is tidy and psychologically or symbolically closed seem hopelessly incomprehensible, totally unlike lived experience. And if we look at the second word in the term reality fiction, fiction, I think of your theater background, here you are taking the real historical figures, their real words, but placing them as new actors, essentially on a on a fictional stage of interaction, um, but one where they engage with real ideas. So, could you tell us a little bit about this quote in relationship to realism for you? Because you talk about it's interesting in relationship to the laboratory that you're talking about it as a place of trying to control and to simplify, and which but in the aim of getting real results. But in a sense, what you're arguing for realism is, is polyvocal, cacophonous, untidy. Uh, speak more about that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you're asking really to a difficult, little challenging knot. Um, right. So the reality fiction wants to try to encourage the echoes of both, both terms in the historical sense. Um, it is about reality. In this, in, and, and I mean that in the sense that these are real lives with real implications and that the, the, the ideas that these people really live by, these characters, these historic, mean something to the lives of others. So partly I, I was trying to call up the idea that this is not just fiction because real lives are and were at stake. Um, then, of course, it goes into the aesthetic component, which is that realism has these multiple meanings and those are elaborated, elaborated within the book. What you're bringing up is also true, that when I think of what I think of reality and how it feels, it, yes, it is more of the, the sort of Bakhtinian, carnivalesque, polyvocal mess of a world. And I also have thought a lot about the agora or the, the Greek sense of a place of argumentation, um, that you argue decisions um, through a kind of uh, protagonist-antagonist synthesis of ideas. Um, and so I was thinking a lot about that I wanted this book to be an argument, an extended, nuanced, and in some ways very confusing argument. 
I don't know if I answered your question. No, I at think all. you did a good job. <laughs> um, so the book uses a variety of different and strange fonts uh, for the different uh, voices. Some are bolded, some are not. Some are spare, some are pretty baroque. And I'm wondering, it's very strange looking when you open the book because of all these different fonts. You can feel the way it's, um, it feels like it's foregrounding the, the way it's a, a piecemeal experiment itself. But I'm curious what the intent is for you in the, in the, the texture of, of looking at the book. Yeah, it's about pacing. I mean, frankly, just on a just as a as an artist, um, if it had all been, it's about pacing and the difference between what was quoted from a book at the time or from a letter, how we feel when we read those as in, in terms of the dramatic pacing of that scene. Um, the really difficult part for me to write this novel was to was to keep the reader moving through it. Um, it does have a lot of voices entering and exiting, and if they had all been in the same font or, or been uh, too homogenous, we couldn't have visually heard. Because to me, that's that's where my, the I don't know, I can't separate out how the dynamics of the page have a performative basis. And so for me, that's a visual hearing. It's like it's and, and the and the and the kerning and the letting and how a, what the fonts are doing. We, we feel them differently in terms of how we flow through that particular text. So um, so I don't want either readers to either bog down too much or be confused as to voice or I so it took I mean I have to say this is where of course I have to shout out to the editors and the designers because we they were they were very intuitive about what we were going to need to accomplish um, to design the book so that it it was successful hmm. and Claude Bernard had like you had a, an early interest in theater <laughs> one that was perhaps frustrated um, <laughs> but the 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 place where he would perform his experiments was also called yes, a theater. Yes. Um, can you talk a little bit about that aspect of? Yes, his he proudly career? called himself the physiologist in the theater. Um, he was frustrated, and later in the novel, it tells about an early play of his that was that he handed to somebody who then published it, and it became a kind of its own little moment of drama between his widow and and the world. Um, but uh, theatricality in the book is very important because be, because of the performance of the live body on a stage as a found again foundational to what science was doing, which was to create an audience for the proof of facticity in a very particular way. It needed its audience. You needed the audience to witness the facts so that they became both replicatable, you know, you could repeat them, and they were sellable as facts. So the, 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 the conversation between performance and drama and, and the facts of, of science was very important to me. Um, and that's why there's a section about, with Fontenelle, because his early dialogues really used the theater as the metaphor for understanding the world. But in the book, I also want to to reveal to the reader that around this time there was a shift towards the discourse of film and there's an important character in the book Eugène Marais who was one of Claude's protégés who developed the very first techniques for data collection and almost proto-film work and his intention was not 
to use vivisection because he thought it was messy. And in fact, vivisection was not a visual procedure. It's, it was a visceral procedure. When you were vivisecting an animal, you couldn't see very well what you were doing. And what made a good vivisector, and I hate to even say it, but was someone who was almost like a surgeon. I mean, you, you had to get in there with your hands. So the hand is very much a poetic theme within the, within the theatrical part of the book. But then with Auger Marais, we start to see a transition to data and film and information as things the body gives up textually. So what you start to read in a body is now becoming data and information. And we see this right around the same time. Um, and that was another thing. So I wanted to track the transition from theater to film as well. Hmm. We've talked already a lot about how science has been influencing literature. And now we have this little piece of the way theater might be influencing science in, in a small way. But we also have Claude Bernard describing opening a dog like opening a book. and. He, he's attending literary salons with like Flaubert and Georges Sand and um, really embraced as a celebrity scientist among That's the, the literary yes. world. Right. It's fascinating. Yeah. The, the, it was a different. It, yes. The, the, the thinkers of the time were interdisciplinary. Everybody. There wasn't the expert in the same. We, we live in a culture now of expertise that didn't quite exist in the same way. Yeah. Well, in one interview, you talk about the value of what you call situations in, fi in fiction. You say situations go beyond language to awareness. It is a space where rationality doesn't prevail, where speech is only one form of communication, where the possibility exists of getting past ourselves to explore all the sides of a living world. So you've also said that situations are the basis for the best literature. So what is what exactly is a situation? And maybe you could point out what types of literature aren't based on situations as part of that understanding? Aren't based on situations? Yeah, like so if the best literature comes from situations or it's the our situations are the basis for the best literature, first maybe you could just help us to understand what that means. And then also, I don't know if you could point out something you'd be like, well, that's clearly something not based on a on a situation. Hmm. Uh, that's a good challenge. You're very smart. Um that's, I like that kind of dialectical question, and I'm always responsible for asking them, so I'm, I'm kind of on the spot. Um, we can come back to it if you want. No, I'd, I will want to think about that a little bit. I mean, off the bat, I would say that, I mean, to me, a, a situation is where there's no, there's a, it's hard to find the authorial center, where there's enough, the authority is dispersed um, in the text or in the, in, in the, in the environment. Um, and so that you can't, it's hard as the reader or the audience to feel, I mean, like you think of Stein's definition of landscape in a play, right? Um, that you can't find the point of view, the vantage that would become the truth, or you're not aligned with a singular point of view and that kind of guides you and comforts you about where you should be as a reader. So a situation just doesn't allow that settled viewpoint. So it wouldn't be like a hero narrative wouldn't That's be a situation. Right, or, or the kind of domestic first-person descriptive realism we're used to, where we kind of just 
cotton onto the main voice and get we get taken along. We don't have to think against it, if that makes sense. Like I'm much more interested. I to me, what a situation feels like when I'm in a situation. Even it's I don't know quite where I am and what the truth is. It'd be hard to find one version of reality right then, and that's how it feels. And that's something to to seek out as an aesthetic. Well, because it's very easy for us to always think that what we think is the way every... I mean, there's a, a sort of pervasive and I don't even think a natural egotism to the way we proceed through the world. And I guess what I'm interested in is in counteracting that and yeah. trying to, yeah, through an awareness practice almost, ask, what am I not asking? What else is being said here? What are, there, what are the infinite numbers of points of view on a number of different scales? So it's not even just what the people in the room are thinking, but where is this room and what other forces are operating? And, you know, I, I think that we think that, yes, I get discouraged with a kind of myopia, the, yeah, the heroic myopia um, of a lot of what passes for storytelling. Yeah. When we first started the conversation and I was saying, well, let's talk about the principal two characters and you weren't sure who those were. And I and I was thinking about that in terms of situations. If we think of Claude and Fanny as, as merely one small situation that's intersecting with a whole bunch of others. Right. The, other, the other characters at the time, scientific and literary. But also we touched on the, the really volatile political situation of going back and forth between a monarchy and a republic in Paris and the commune and how that affected the status of animals. And, and I was, and there's many ways that the book touches on this, this background. Um, for instance, the, the medical and philosophical idea that pain exists only in conscious creatures. So if you had no thought, you had no suffering and that had political consequences, even though, um, the people saying it weren't necessarily thinking of them. Um, that perhaps that animals, Jews, blacks had let could feel less pain because of this. Women, uh, in, yes. At this equation, well, yes. that's what I wanted to talk about. Was can we talk a little bit about what was going on with the status of women at the time? And I'm not a historian, and I have to say that because I'm really yeah. not a historian. Um, I know that when I researched this book, I was really amazed at how frequently the activists brought up the abolition movement, women's movement, that at the time what I was amazed by was how much of an equivalence people saw between these movements. That's that's more what I'll say. And I don't think women for one second thought that they were any further from being experimented on. They were they were not being experimented on because of the animals instead. And they would next. They would be next. I, I don't there was a, a palpable sense that um, a hair's breadth lay between them and the animals. Well, you have that um, Balzac's Physiology of Marriage, the um, which has all these different little aphorisms. Marriage is a science. A man cannot marry before he has studied anatomy and has dissected at least one woman. A married woman is a slave who must be enthroned. Right. Which, <laughs> I mean, that was amazing. And... Um, and I think Balzac was writing it as a, a parody on, yes, on and the Balzac's, conventions of marriage. Yes, but. no, he, the book does compress time. Well, I mean, Balzac, as you know, is a little before, you know, he does, Zola, but he's in the same trajectory, but we're, we're compressing a few decades here. But yes, I think the sentiment is clear. And, um, and, and yes, who has pain and of what kind and who has status in society, those, those questions are very alive and it, and it brings the animal movement up 
to the level of the same civil rights movements as other things that are going on. But a lot of people worked in multiple movements at, at this, you know. Mm -hmm. Well, let's talk a little bit more about the, the ethical orientation of the reality fiction. Because we get Victor Hugo on one side, we get a complicated Charles Darwin, perhaps in the middle, um, and Claude Bernard on the other. Um, but you have this blurb on the back of, of the book by Paul Lafarge that I want to read and then ask you about. His blurb says that you are on the side of the animals, <laughs> that your novel in its form does justice to the weight and complexity of the problem. And then he goes on to say, knowledge depends upon violence. To understand life, we have to break it to pieces and to see the past in a new light, we have to burn up old ideas. But my, I myself as a reader of Experimental Animals didn't feel like the book agreed that knowledge depended upon either knowledge or that things needed to be broken yes. apart to be understood. That's the model that actually, I'm, in some ways, I'm critiquing, that, that violence or pain is the basis of knowledge. I, I don't know that that's always got to be the case. I've been asked a number of times, is this book a vivisection? And I genuinely hope not. I mean, <laughs> that's not that, yes, it's in fragments, but I, I, my, I hope that my use of fragments is more curatorial, that in some ways I'm trying to point towards a whole that we aren't considering, the way a society has a life that's bigger than its pieces, rather than the opposite, rather than a reductionist look at fragments. So I, I would say I'm trying to do a, a, a fragments in the service of a, of a kind of holism rather than fragments in the scientific reductionist sense. Yeah, that seems like an important clarification. Very, and I've been asked that a number of times. So I, yes, I, I, I hope that, I mean, in some ways, people say, well, this book was so difficult to read; it was so painful. And I thought, well, there's the pain. Maybe, maybe that's the pain of the book. The pain is having to actually hear about the pain. Yeah, and um, that's why I use that quote from uh, Wilkie Collins at the end where he is in his preface to Heart and Science, where he says, I will keep the door of the laboratory closed, you know, to protect the reader. And I didn't want to do that because that does not pay tribute to the, to the efforts of those realists who thought that it was important that the audience got a real taste of what is being hidden from them. Mm. And I, that's, that's my motivation for any pain in the book is to say this pain exists and it, whether or not you are aware of it, you can choose to sleep through it if you can, but it exists. So, and that's what these women activists couldn't do. They couldn't sleep through it. They couldn't just hide in their homes and listen to the suffering that was going on, which is the same with the abolitionists and many of these other activists. What's different about them? Why were they the people who couldn't sleep? Hmm. You know, I don't know. That's one question I hope the book asks. Why are some people capable of a kind of sleep and others can't? survive one more second without doing something about it. Well, and sort of to counterbalance this um, evocation of the pain that is going on, you've also said, I hope that the book rescues the sense of wonder we might feel before the complexity of life, rescues what we owe to other creatures, especially from incursions of desensitizing language, and rescues history from any one version of it. And, and you have this line in your first book, uh, point in line, free living wild animals don't stand in silhouette against man-shaped backgrounds. And it feels like that is also like, that quote seems like it could be a, an epigram to experimental animals. Yes, well, I've always, you have to realize that I started this book before I wrote any other book I've ever written. Hmm. 
So this book is the frame around which every other book I've ever written has come out uh, or had lives within. And so a lot of my thinking has evolved over these 17-year period. Um, there's a paragraph or two in this book I wrote 17 or 18 years ago now. Wow. Um, so, so yeah, so I, I've, you know, I have a background. I think a lot about animal-human relationships. That's a big part of all of my work. Um, I remember when I gave my first, my first reading from Point in Line somewhere, and someone said, there are, I don't know why, why are there no people in your book? And I thought, there's people all over my book. There's plenty of people. There's <laughs> like almost too many people. Yeah. Um, but it was kind of a funny question, and I thought, oh, wow, that's funny. I, don't, I think of it as, I don't know, I think of the... I, I definitely want to have ask bigger questions than just the people questions. Right. Uh, I want to get more into that oh. and around some of your thoughts on human versus non-human centered narrative. But um, before we do that, I was hoping you might read a little bit more. Okay. Does a scientist listen to nature without hope or prejudice? Where he was brave, is he humble in front of experimental results? If the facts contradict the idea, does he take a backward step in obedience to their testimony? Mythical Tancredi's crusading warriors, instructed to cut trees for fortress towers, heard pained cries coming from inside the trunks. Tancredi, who loved and killed an enemy warrior, Clorinda, heard her voice from a cypress, begging him not to kill her a second time. He returned to camp, persuaded that each tree is alive with a soul. It's not in my power, Tancredi says, to touch another bough of that forest. Claude often tells of the magical moment when he was sectioning the sympathetic nerve of a rabbit, how he expected to find the affected part cold, but it got hot, leading to the discovery of the vasoconstriction nerves. Proudly, he was humble then, simply seeing what there was to see. But the devil might penetrate the humble mind of such a Christian, the extremity of control that the medieval church held over all aspects of village life, severed Claude's ancestors from the symbolic symbolism, reciprocity, and pleasure of any nature that might take events into its own hands. No moment too private, no forest too dense for the church to oversee. As members of the household, and therefore under the king's ban, animals enjoyed the same vergilt as women and peasant workers, and their best to covert had the same rights and responsibilities as humans. In the case of violent crime, the death penalty was required, especially for domestic animals, for not only was evil incarnate in the beast who committed the deed, but also in the infested home, which could be vexed for centuries, its aura corrumpens, holding title to the real estate until the sin was fully paid. An animal, convicted in the court and hung in public, was often dressed in human clothes and mask. We've been listening to Talia Field read from Experimental Animals, a reality fiction from Solid Objects. Can you talk about the box of your childhood objects you discovered while writing this book oh. and the dogs, <laughs> the dogs you wrote about when you were a kid? Well, yeah. I mean, it's weird. That's a weird little side drawer, isn't it? Um, I was working on this book for years, years and years. In fact, it, I was and I was had to clean out a yeah old childhood boxes. I was my out of my mother's house and. Um, I found a something I had written in second or third grade that was like a, a, my autobiography, you know, in, in construction paper, and on the cover was a, a dog, and um, inside it, the whole dedicated the entire thing to these two dogs of mine who had both been stolen from our backyard in Hyde Park. I grew up on the south side of Chicago, and 
and I remembered, oh, yes, this I remember the policeman showing up. One dog had got had been stolen, but but they had found him wandering the streets with a rope around his neck and they brought him home the first time and said yes we're having trouble there's a there's a there's some kind of dog stealing ring operating in the neighborhood and they're taking a lot of dogs that dog then got restolen as well as my very old dog um, both at the same time so two two of our dogs were taken and then never returned after that um, and 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 I remember them saying it was for the labs at the University of Chicago and I was and anyway, it was it was just shocking to me how profoundly that had affected me at the time and how in many ways this book is, I think, the echo of the tra- of the just devastation um, of that story of what happened to those dogs. I, I can't even think about it, really. I mean, and that's something you rediscovered in, while you were writing. Yeah, it wasn't I wasn't like, oh, I'm going to write the story of. Yeah, it didn't even occur to me. I, don't, I probably would have shut my whole project right down if I had made that discovery earlier. I discovered it about eight months before the book came out. And in fact, I asked Lisa and Max if I could put a dedication at the very back to those dogs. But that was we were already in production by the time I yeah. asked for that. You've talked very um, extensively about the limitations of like a human-centered narrative. And this question of the Anthropocene, of like sort of the inexorable humanization and domestication of the world, is something that comes up a lot in interviews on, on the show, mm. like from Ricky Ducournay to Ursula Le Guin. Mm. It, it, we touch upon these these questions, but you've really articulated a lot. You mentioned that this question and the questions of this book frame your entire literary career. Uh, so I wanted to quote a couple things and then and talk more about it because. I feel like it, this will be particularly interesting to other writers in suggesting possible venues of how, of how to write differently. Um, so two quick things I'm going to read. Um, from where I stand, I think literary practice is due for a deep revision of our relationship to the world and to selves in it. Cut open to expose the human-centered narrative for its arrogance and ignorance, the complex impartiality of the world without cinematic point of view makes for disorienting, broken, beautiful frames. And then you've also said, a human-centered poetics is where the scale is human, the time is human, weeks, days, months, years, the landscape is human, the psychology is human, the crises are human. It's become equivalent to the cinematic in that what we consider human is is eminently filmable or able to be conceived in terms of edited visual screens. Cinematic prose contains consistent scale of space and time, and the human figure, whether in close-up or establishing shot, predominates. This aesthetic holds because ultimately we don't spend a lot of time in the awareness of our world without ourselves as tragic heroes of it. Larger time frames or scales rarely occur to us. Participation in the chorus of other creatures seems impossible, and it's scarcely imaginable to write ourselves out of the picture altogether. So... I don't know if this could be a launching off point for a discussion or even um, if there are writers that you particularly love um, or filmmakers for that matter that feel like they're um, interrogating this question of how to frame time or character or protagonist in a way that isn't a human-centered way. I have to think about that. I mean, you know, I think a lot of scientists have been 
doing that, so especially biologists and geologists, you know, E.O. Wilson's biophilia or, you know, there's some, there's some thinkers who have influenced me and the, especially thinkers from the deep ecology movement um, have been very influential for me in giving me momentum to say, well, why, if these, if we take these things as awareness practices, then why are our aesthetics so rigidly, um, yeah, human-focused? Why are we all about ourselves all the time? And in some ways, I see it getting worse, not better, um, but especially in fiction, I think. Wouldn't you think it would get worse as we humanize the other more and more? Like the earth is, is reflecting ourselves back right. to ourselves. I mean, I'm, I'm developing a course at Brown on animal surveillance models from a piece that I wrote in my book, Incarnate. The last piece in that book is called Zoologic. And it was kind of about the animals in the surveillance state. And, um, and I think that as we're used to even watching wildlife as trackable, screen-based sort of virtual zoos of where they have no privacy and they live in a kind of wilderness slash zoo that at this point has become just a human extension. It's almost like our backyard. That's, I mean, that's why I use the word in my other book. Um, that, yeah, the, the stories that we tell, uh, I think we're in a crisis. I, I, I don't, it's a crisis. Um, it's hard to give back a, sub, a thing we've stolen which is the privacy of children and animals in a certain way. Hmm. Um, and, uh, but we'll see. I don't know. I mean, it's, it's, it feels like a crisis to me. You know, when people write about more and more the kind of daily minutia of the human life, the more it becomes about, you know, walking up these stairs and what I thought as I drank my coffee. And I just, I, I, I really have to ask, what are we what are what stories are we talking about and what are we not talking about so i've said it well probably because i had a moment to <laughs> work on those quotes that you yeah. that you gave but um yes i think we're in a serious crisis and i think our aesthetic response has to reflect the a new attitude uh, toward the philosophy of who we are on this planet and if our aesthetics aren't going to adjust then we're not we're not doing any good as artists. Well, I feel like those quotes suggest some really fertile areas of exploration. Both, I mean, one of the things that I think you, you hint at in this book when you talk about writing um, from a non-human scale of time, I mean, you, I, there's still a human scale of time in this book, I think, but the fact that you extend it beyond the lives of the characters, so we go past them being alive and right. see how they're commemorated or not commemorated, yes. and then obviously the limitations of archival material is also uh, meditation on the afterlife of people beyond life, birth, and death. Exactly, and also there's a Flaubert quote somewhere in there, like you know, history and science are the muses of the modern age, or something. And and so in some ways, this is this is a book where I'm thinking about history. Also, um, it's not something I'd really thought about before until I tried to put on the historian hat a little. But yeah, so I'm thinking about. What is it to write history, and how do how do those other ideas that I had been contemplating before how do they how do they affect my view of history? Which is why there's a section about Darwin and the reconstruction of dinosaur bones because that's often how I felt like you got a one little bone and you got another little bone, but in, those dinosaurs could have lived apart million thousands of years, but they the bones are sitting right next to each other, and there's a 
and that's the kind of time. And then that's why I also end with Darwin, Darwin's vision of the worms, because he really also made a huge journey in his life about what history meant to him. And he's really thinking about history as a living and monumentally large idea, not about humans and not about any one species or population. And so I, that, the thing that the importance of Darwin in my book is not just how he functioned in the sort of human scale narrative of Claude and Fanny in this little moment, but also how he really d- deeply thought about time and history and, and life, life, how life is in, stands in relationship to those things. Obviously, he's a revered scientific figure, but is probably unbeknownst to most is sort of you've placed him in a in a different scientific paradigm, essentially one that seems to be more holistic. Why? Yeah, in the, in the sense that, like, you have this quote, you have this epigram at the beginning of Incarnate uh, by Neil Everenden. Our assumptions of separateness are unacceptably simplistic, and we might more closely approximate the facts of existence by regarding ourselves less as objects than as sets of relationships or as processes in time rather than as static forms. And when you think about maybe the flaws you're talking about in literature, maybe one of the, if not flaws, limitations of science is the idea that you have to control all the variables and that the information you get when all the variables are controlled is real information um, versus looking at the complexity and finding a way to relate to the complexity. Because you can't study, like one of the downfalls of science, for instance, you can't study things that are multifactorial. So that's why nutritional science is so terrible because you're not going to put someone in a lab and then um, measure everything that goes in their mouth and live their whole life that way and then have a control subject. Right, and how do they else. eat and where do they live and what are they breathing and what are the pollutants? I mean, right, it's too complicated. But this is, so Neil Verndon is another author. I would have mentioned his book, The Natural Alien, had an enormous impact on me about our species and the way we think. Um, but, uh, but it's, right, a tree. A tree is not an object. It's not a thing. It's not even a noun. It's a process. And, you know, it, that, that we don't think of, of, and that it goes back to that question of situations, that that situations are, are processes of relationships that we that it's hard to find their borders and their boundaries. We don't know where they begin and end. We we don't see the right. If we look at one lifetime as the biography of a person, what are we missing when we think about it that way? And and so all of these are related questions to me, even the question as as in Bird Lovers, my book before this one, which I which I really had to write to get out of the way because these two books were really tangled in my brain. And um, but but just even what is a species doesn't have an answer because we can't if we think of it as a noun with a certain set of definitional qualities, we're missing all kinds of relational qualities that um, that are equally important to the to the lives of real creatures. So it's all including ourselves. And this makes me think of how, like, you're talking about we're in a crisis around narrative and sto- and story making and what we're telling our stories about, which would suggest that um, if we're doing a domestic story in um, Brooklyn uh, between two artists in their apartment, there there's a political aspect to, to the, what you're not telling your story about by limiting your story to that. There's sort of political consequences, at least it felt that way to me. And you brought up bird lovers backyard because, um, in it, you talk about the passenger pigeon, um, and how the flocks used to be so large that they cast a shadow a mile wide and 300 miles long. There were, that there were so many passenger pigeons as late as the 19th century that in Michigan, 
50,000 were killed daily for five months straight. And when they were finally killed to extinction, a quarter million were killed in one single day. And that even loops back to experimental animals with the change of the status of the pigeon in France. You talk about um, how it was a loved bird and then became a pest during the French Revolution. Yes, not the passenger pigeon, but the, the pigeon rock pigeon. Of, yes, yeah. right. But my, my bigger point is the sort of lamentation of not only the loss of species, but the loss of species populations. Like we can't even conceive of, of populations of birds like the populations of passenger pigeons in the United States just 150 years ago. And our misunderstandings of the narratives that we enact. I mean, I guess one of the probably the biggest themes in all of my work is the relationship of what we think about a story and what we do as people, like the relationship between what we say and how we behave and um, the kinds of narratives that we tell or think about about animals has contributed to their status as either worshipped figures in the case of like those World War II pigeons and all of the, you know, or or bums on the street that you kick around and want to exterminate. And I think that this the the spectrum of our storytelling, um, I'm, I work at a parrot sanctuary um, and it's uh, and tragic. It is it's a daily tragedy to see wild animals who have been forced into the confines of the story of a pet, for example, and then abandoned um, when they form 50, 60, 70 year pair bonds and are now consigned to a a loneliness longer than you or I will even be alive, um, where they can't fly as they're meant to and they can't form the social networks that they need to and they're living in basically prison camps. Um, and the, the parallels between the kind of stories that we allow to, to, to continue um, have to have tragic consequences on the lives of other creatures who are as least as feeling and intelligent, you know, as we are in their way, we, our, our whole version of ourselves is just, I just think we'd, we would feel completely differently if we allowed other stories to impact us. Well, on that note, you've, you've compared ecology and theater, saying that they're similar terms to you. And I was wondering if that, I don't know if that relates to what we're just talking about or not, hmm. but is there, <laughs> is there something? Well, when I was a theater artist, I was also pretty radical in terms of how I thought about how people, text should function, how stories should function, and how theater um, could model new ways of thinking about authorship and um, community, for example. So I wrote plays in which, you know, there was no set script. There were prompts that um, the actors would memorize and then uh, rehearse the situations, but what they said each day was was based on was based on their own minds, their own thinking minds. And I was very interested in watching that thought process on stage. That that's what interests me is 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 people thinking together, not having just the uh, the author um, impose the text, but create environments where text can uh, liberate a kind of collective. Uh, exploration of, of narrative and thought, um, kind of an extension of John Cage, who was an early influence on me as an artist. Um, so it was my reaction to both Cage and Stein and Piscator and Brecht. I sort of, I, I stirred them all together and I came up with my own weird, weird uh, versions of things. But I, I haven't answered what you meant about ecology in there. Um, I mean, at the 
it, it's an ecology of, of questions and of thinking and of modeling how we can be together in, in ways that, I mean, it sounds kind of dumb and utopian when I say it, which I'm kind of not a utopian human being, so it's funny, but I come off sounding kind of utopian. But, but I do think that it matters. I guess that's what I'm really saying. It matters what kind of stories we tell and what we allow our minds, our awareness to, to do and, and how limited we allow our stories to be because it matters in terms of how we behave and act and the choices we make and those have impacts. So I think it matters. I guess that's what I'm saying. Yeah, and it loops back to, I mean, in a totally different enterprise, but the realists in the 19th century were trying to create a new Absolutely. type of awareness. Both kinds of realists. Yeah, both types of realists were the activist realists and the ones we we normally consider yeah. realists are, are looking to speak of and create stories of, that are not being told. That's right. But I, I want to ask you, you mentioned Stein, you mentioned Cage, and you mentioned awareness and the importance of these new types of stories, like sort of placing us at a crisis point and perhaps even throwing down the gauntlet for writers to like, well, can we create these narratives that are going to engage these things that are happening and worsening over time? Um, I'm going to quote you again, my apologies, but... Um, I, I'm really curious about this quote. At the heart of the question of form and content is process, how an artist uses awareness to destroy dull and conventional habits of language and worldview. Both Stein and Cage innovatively used awareness practice to open up new areas of form and theatricality. And I was curious what you meant by awareness practice, because it sounds to me Buddhist, like I think of Buddhism when I think of awareness practice, and um, if you have awareness practices. Is, is there a practice that you use or practices that you use around cultivating awareness? And I would put, um, I mean, artists who've had that kind of impact on me, I would say Stein and Cage for sure. I would put Virginia Woolf in there and mostly the Virginia Woolf of Three Guineas. The, the Virginia Woolf of her using that unbelievable talent in the service of really exploring a, a question um, and uh, and also I would include even back to Flaubert's uh, Bouvard and Pécuchet, where he attempts through farce and humor uh, to explore um, the way we speak and how it has impact on our on our actions. Um, so and and then again, like I mentioned, Brecht and Piscator also I think were working with the audience as as a collaborator in awareness. And I guess that's what I would say about it. Um, do I have awareness practices? I mean, yes, I. I mean, without getting any too personal, I mean, yes, I, I have uh, years of experience in, in Buddhist practice, but that's, in, a, in some ways, like Cage, I feel like my best version of my own practices is through art making, um, that through art making and, and teaching to a certain extent, it's a way to uh, create a container for the exploration of awareness um, and what we can, how to how to use awareness both as an artist as an audience um, to, to get a little unstuck or a little more confused, whichever's better. <laughs> Maybe to get more confused about things we're so sure about. I guess actually in yeah. some ways that's the best use of it. Um, and not to rely on language as the thing that will save us. I, I don't believe it will. I think we need to think about kindness as a value higher than language. And I think a w a language is often stands between us and awareness, not the opposite. So in some ways it is getting past 
our, our language constructs, whether it's through a kind of polyvocality or improvisational techniques or all the kinds of things I've used through the years that I feel like I'm trying for myself as much as for anyone else to get myself to the heart of questions that are bothering me. And when you, you say that sometimes, or you just said that sometimes that um, arriving at confusion is the, is versus more knowledge is perhaps even the, the, the preferred thing in the moment. Um, sometimes it's a clarity. Like when I'm with those parrots, it's clear. This is wrong. This is awful. This yeah. has to stop. Like, you know, I wouldn't know that if I didn't see it every day. You know, the clarity is simple. Sometimes it's confusing. Sometimes we think we know an answer. And we, what we really need is to see the situation for all of its confusion and dwell in that confusion for a while, that I think also has benefits. Yeah. Well, in relation to teaching, you have a class called Un Unpublishable Writing. And I was, or you've taught a class called Unpublishable Writing at Brown. And I, I was intrigued by that title and <laughs> wanted to know a little bit about that class, about the intent behind it and, and what you teach in well, the class cl of Unpublishable Writing. Yes. It's, it is about everything that's unpublishable. Um, and I guess I would say that publishable means that kind of finite, uh, convention-driven, product-driven work that tends to be up, uh, sellable or marketable or, you know, that, that we work on stuff that's sculptural or, it, that, or exists in social space where it is engaging in an ephemeral way, um, can't be captured or isn't. You know, so obviously I, I allow the students are encouraged to to um, be very iterative, to look at audience and readers as as collaborators in different ways. Um, we use most of my classes I teach are not on the page exclusively. So we use whatever forms people feel like using and bringing to the conversation. So after this 17 year project has come to uh, to its fruition do you know what you're working on next or are you in a, a period of unknowing i'm in a period of unknowing i have some sense but i some inklings yeah tiny tiny inklings well it's great having you on between thank the you so much today. this has been fascinating to talk to you thank you we're talking today to talia field about her latest book from solid objects called experimental animals a reality fiction You've been listening to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's program was recorded at the studios of KBOO. Volunteer-powered, non-commercial, listener-sponsored, full-strength community radio from Portland, Oregon, found at kboo.fm. If you enjoyed today's program, consider supporting the show by going to patreon.com slash between the covers and also while you're there check out the growing archive of bonus material available thanks for listening